Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I am glad that you've taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan. And I'm glad, like yourself, that there are people who spend some time listening to the program and allow us to come into their home. We so much appreciate that. Thank you very much. And we hope that it doesn't just end with you listening to the program. We look forward to your interaction. Again, that's why we're here this evening. And I know that's why Pastor Murphy is sitting across the desk from me this evening, is to answer your questions. So if you have a question, it can be big, it can be small, it can be maybe something that you have vaguely heard Pastor Murphy answering at some point in the past, and you say, you know what, I don't remember the answer to it, but I want to make sure I'm ready to give an answer to my coworker, to my family member, to a friend, to the stranger on the bus. Feel free to ask the question. We all need a refresher. And maybe it is a question that you think, surely, Pastor Murphy has answered it in the past. You are new to the program. Uh, You've just recently started tuning in. Welcome. And it doesn't matter how simple your question may seem. We want to hear your question, and Pastor will answer it from a biblical worldview using Scripture and the principles in Scripture Again, maybe you don't have a question, but you have a suggested topic that you would like Pastor to consider discussing in a future episode. We would love to get your input. We have a number of questions that have come in, and we will throw your questions into the list of questions as you send your question in or call in. The first one is, Pastor, how is it in Genesis 10 verse 5, that the Bible says, each with his own language, and then in Genesis 11, 1, says the whole earth had one language. Well, I think one of the ways, um, one of the explanations for this one, um, this is a common feature that you'll find, in the, in the, especially in the Old Testament, uh, that, that what happens when the writer is dealing with a particular topic, and he kind of gives you a full treatment on the topic. And then he gives you a flashback after that. And that's what's happening here. Um, he's given a general um, treatment of, in terms of the um, nations and people that were came after Noah. And then in uh, chapter 11, he explains how the languages came about. Same thing you find in the book of um, Genesis when it comes to Cain. Uh, it's as though you told the whole story of Cain. 
But again, uh, the writer in chapter uh, 5 later will explain to you that Cain had a wife, and the question is how did Cain have a wife? And we only given that information when we learned that Adam lived 130 years and had Abel, and after he lived uh, Abel, he lived from uh, 130 years to another 800 years, and between them he had sons and daughters. So that's, that's what really happened. The law of full treatment is I'm dealing with a subject, and I kind of summarize the whole story. Then I give you a flashback later on to explain what I told you before. That's a common feature even in, in, in modern literature, where if you're doing a drama or you're reading a novel, uh, you're given all these details, and then there's a flashback to explain how we got these details. So that's a general principle that you find not only in Scripture, but you also find it in other writings. Um, so I hope that that kind of helps you. But you'll find that in Scripture again and again. It's dealing with the subject. It gives you a full treatment of what summarized treatment. And then it, next chapter or two chapters over, it explains to you the details of what it told you before. Kind of a flashback. Thank you for that question. And the next question that has come in, several times throughout Genesis, the Bible says that Abram built an altar to the Lord. Is there a type of significance attributed to that? Well, I think uh, Abraham is universally known as the man who dotted the landscape of Palestine with altars. Uh, and there's a man that basically went from wherever he went, he established an altar, an altar. And that gives you an idea that he is a God-focused man of faith. Now, the reason why I think that is written is because it contrasts Lot. You don't read of Lot ever building an altar, but remember that Abraham brought Lot with him because Lot was his nephew. Abraham was his uncle. Uh, Lot was a type of a person who was a self-focused man who lived for greed. Uh, he was what you call the materialistic man obsessed with um, advancing. So you've got two contrasting characters, the one that builds the altars and live and dots the landscape with the altars. You have the other guy who's just speculating for the best piece of real estate. So that when he's given the choice, when he should have reneged and said, no, you're my uncle, you ought to get a chance, you're the senior person. The Bible says that he chooses, he chose the best land and the most watered land. It's really contrasting two characters as opposed to teaching any other particular typological principle. But it has to do with the man of faith who's focused on God, worshiping God, devoting his time to, to God and giving his attention to God, and the other man who just totally focused on success in this world and achieving. That's the contrast between um, Lot and Abraham, basically. Thank you for the questions that have been sent in. If you have a question, we would love to hear it. There's multiple ways you can interact with us. You can call and ask your question live on the air, and the phone line is open and waiting your call. And the phone number to call to be put live on the air is 1-268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 7821454 Question from a listener Pastor are the Philistines in the Bible related to Ham that's Noah's son and if so what is their ethnicity Well uh, I think the the you gave a verse didn't you verse um I don't see one. Uh, okay, in front of me, all right. Uh, the thing about that, though, is um, let's see where we can find it. If you look at Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, okay. Where the writer is given the pedigree of Noah's three sons. 
if you notice from verse 2 to 5, he gives you the sons of Japheth. Mm-hmm. Okay? Verses 6 to 20, he gives you the sons of Ham. And in verses 21 to 31, he gives you the sons of Shem. Now, if you look at uh, verses 6 to 20, which the sons of, the sons of Hem, uh, Ham are given, the descendants, if you look at verse 14, it tells you exactly where the Philistines came from. Thank you for saving me for those other eight verses of names. <laughs> uh, Genesis ten fourteen says, And Pathrism and Kelshuim, out of whom came Philistim, the Kaphortim. Okay, the point that is made there, if the person can check it up himself, Genesis um, ten fourteen, is that the Philistines are descendants of Ham. That's the point he asked of who the, who the descendants are. Um, so that 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 should answer the question itself. It's just a, a clear biblical response that the Philistines are descendants of Ham. Um, so that's what that's, that was the question. Bringing it to modern times, you know, there's this war going on in the Gaza Strip in Israel. Are we able to make a connection? Are the Philistines, the Amorites, the Edomites, are any of those people the so-called Palestinians that are uh, laying claim to the land today? Or is there a a direct connection historically? No, but don't forget that um, when the Lord brought Israel into, into the land of Israel, the Philistines were there and the Canaanites were there. But they were completely um, t- told that they should be destroyed. Uh, and the reason for that is God had given them 430 years to repent. The iniquity of the Amorites had not reached up to heaven. That's what the Bible says in the book of Genesis. And they told that Israel would be slaves in Egypt until 430 years after. And then after 430 years, then they would go in and possess the land. So God uh, indicated that, the, the and by the way, when you read the book of Leviticus, as to why God demanded that these nations be destroyed, it is the gross level of immorality that was there. Uh, the Lord uh, told Israel, you don't commit incest, you don't commit bestiality, you don't commit homosexuality, you don't, you don't want, why? Because the nations that I have cast out before you, this is what they practice. So God made a moral choice that these nations should be uprooted, and Israel was given the land of Palestine as a piece of real estate. All the debate today is who has a right to this world, who owns this world. And as far as God is concerned, he is a sovereign God, and he made the decision that that land would be given to Israel. Uh, And remember that the whole reason that that land was given to Israel was that through Israel the the nations would come to know God. They would be the... um, centripetal force to bring nations into God as they, they alter their lifestyle and live in a very moral uh, way, and uh, their religion was far superior to the, the pagans. So it was designed to attract the, the na- other nations to the Lord, but that was the purpose. So am I understanding you correctly that you're saying that the God that you worship, the God that you serve, judges so-called immoral people and immoral nations and punishes them? Every single nation that's been involved in idolatry have gone through slavery, every single one, whether it be European, whether it be East Indian, whether it be um, blacks, it doesn't matter. Every nation and people that have gone into idolatry away from God have been punished by God by the enforcement of of slavery. That is a a given in the Bible, not only uh, even Israel. 
God carried them into slavery, into bondage in the in, in Assyria and also in Babylon. Uh, uh, so it's it's God's a moral ruler of the universe, and men may sin, but nobody gets away with sin ultimately. Uh, nobody breaks the law; the law finally breaks them, and um, that is exactly what happened there. And 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 God is a sovereign God who is righteous, and as I said before, He gave those nations. 430 years to repent. I mean, how much time do you need to repent until the iniquity reaches up to heaven? But then when you read a little Leviticus to see what the moral strictures were against Israel engaging in because of these things were practiced. As a matter of fact, Israel was not supposed to intermarry with any of these nations. Why? They would pull the nation away from God and put them back into darkness and into immorality. That's why it was uh, it was done. So it was like, we, it's like removing a moral a cancer in your body you can leave the cancer and it spreads over the body or you excise the cancer and you save the body. And that's what needed to be done. The unfortunate thing that Israel never performed the total, total work because rather than do what God told them to do, they compromise and allow nations to stay among, which became thorns in their side. And the Bible talks about that as well in the book of Judges. There are so many different perspectives in the world that we live today. And for the individual who's listening tonight and says, Pastor Murphy, I don't want the judgment of this God that you serve. And uh, maybe it's a citizen. Maybe it's a politician saying, I don't want God's judgment on the country that I am in charge of. Pastor, how does the Bible define idolatry and immorality? Those two things that you're saying that God judges. Idolatry is whatever we give our attention to and our time to whatever it is that we give most of our time to and most of our attention to. So we have modern idols today. I know people whose idol is their motor car. Quite frankly, they spend Sunday polishing their God and making sure everything is okay, and they never worship God and never come to church. I know people whose, money is, whose, whose God is their money. All the attention, all the effort, all the time is given to make more and more and more and more. I know people whose God is their children. It doesn't. The children can't do wrong, and uh, they would bend over backward, do anything in the world, and their children get all the attention and all their focus and uh, all their resources. So uh, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is when we devote our time and our effort to anything that displaces God, and they're modern idols today. When it comes to immorality, immorality is engaging any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. That includes fornication, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, lesbianism, and uh, whatever else is there out there that we don't know about because there are a lot more <laughs> evils out there that people don't even realize. Um, I've, I don't want to go into that, quite frankly, but that's what it is. Idolatry, and by the way, when people go into idolatry where they displace God in their life, inevitably, they become immoral. That's, a, again, if you read the book of Romans, when it's giving you the whole profile of how the Gentiles... Uh, went away and fell into all this immorality, you'll find that Paul mentioned that the worship idols became foolish in their imaginations. And then Paul mentions way down that uh, they came to a point where they became so immoral that God had to give them up. Men burning in lust to men and women with women. What is fascinating about that passage, by the way, that Paul mentions lesbianism before he mentions homosexuality with men. It has always been before women engage in these acts before men. And the reason for that is women are very, very emotional and they get attached very, very easily and uh, they get engaged in their activities and men are, are a lot more conservative when it comes to those kind of things. 
So it's it's it's, it's what uh, what happens when a nation or people go away from God. Look at the Caribbean. Look at America. Uh, the decline in America now, 50 percent divorce rate. You go back to the forties or the thirties, and you will find that that was a thing of, of that was hardly known. Today, and what has happened to America? It's gone away from God. It's gone into idolatry. It's made money the focus. It's made buildings the focus. It's made everything except God. Uh, there are exceptions to the rule, generally speaking. But the decline of a nation starts with the decline of spirituality. And once that begins to take place, you go into uh, immoral practices. Let me put it this way. Life to me is very simple. If you don't live for God and you don't believe in a God, what else is there to live for? Think about that for just a moment. There's some basic things. Number one, power, control. Mm -hmm. Number two, money. Number three, pleasure. I can't think of anything else that people live for when you don't live for God. It is either power, it is either pleasure, um, or uh, learning, uh, intellect, um, the pursuit of knowledge, basically. Uh, But outside of, of God... That is where we end up going, and, and you can see very well that when you move away from the Lord, um, life has no meaning, no purpose. You're trying to make meaning for yourself. And because we're human beings and we were created to be social, it normally ends up that we find try to find meaning and purpose in socializing, and that leads to the deterioration of morals, which leads to immorality, which normally leads to, to sex, to be honest with you. That's what really happens. For the listener who says, Pastor Murphy... You're talking about this judgment of God, and I want to avoid it. How do I avoid it? I mean, I'm I'm religious. I go to church. I'm fair. I'm just. I I'm fine, right? Uh, we get right with God only one way. You're going to church and practice. Oh, by the way, if you go into the Old Testament, <laughs> think about it that while Israel is engaging in all of these immoral activities and 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 so, they're still going to the altar, they're still making the sacrifice. So don't confuse religion. You can have religion and still not have a relationship with God. And uh, what a person needs to do to avert God's judgment is to let Christ, who took God's wrath for us, become your Savior. And that involves repenting of your sins and putting your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. Simple gospel, repent and believe the gospel. That is, the, in essence, what the Bible teaches in this whole matter of being saved. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and specifically, the name of the program is That's Truth with Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. We are here to answer your question, so if you have a question, you can call and ask it by dialing 268 268- Four six two seventy four twenty. Nathan, I want to say something else as well. I know we as Christians got to avoid being timid in giving biblical answers because we offend the culture of foreign people. The day is coming when it will become very clear that whatever God has done is just. We may not have all the facts as to why He did certain things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but that day is coming when God's justice will be affirmed and demonstrated and displayed. But we as Christians must provide biblical answers and not try to wonder, well, how is this going to go off with a certain sector of society? How are they going to respond? Because all of us uh, look at life through colored spectacles from our own personal aspect. But that's not how we're supposed to look at We're supposed to give answers from Scripture, 
even though those answers are not favorable or approved by modern society. In other words, we don't change the facts to suit the culture. The culture has to change to fall in line with the facts. But we should be loving as a Christian, so how can I say something that disturbs someone if I'm still being loving to them? Well, the worst thing you can do is to, in the, under the pretext of, not love it, of loving somebody, not tell them the truth. As a matter of fact, it's the truth that sets a person free. Uh, but the truth is always offensive as well. You look at the life of Christ, and you will discover that no man spake like this man. No man uh, had the quality of knowledge uh, like this man had, and no one spoke with such efficacy as this man had. But again, they end up crucifying him. And if he was alive today, by the way, they'll crucify him again. So we've just speak the truth, make sure your motive is correct. The whole goal is that that person come to an understanding of, of, of God, love God. But again, we don't uh, in any way curtail the truth and compromise the truth and water down the truth because we want to ingratiate ourselves in favor of people who hold a different opinion. That's the one thing we must not do. But again, the spirit in which we, we do it as well is important. We're not here to knock people down and bludgeon in them, but we're here to just speak the simple truth. Sometimes um, my simp- sympathy, for example, I'll be very honest with you, it's difficult for me to understand hell. I couldn't see myself uh, even taking my worst enemy and doing that. I'll be honest with you because I'm a human being who's sinful and knows my weaknesses. But if, and again, which of us can conceive a holy God who is totally perfect and cannot look upon sin and who gives opportunities for people to change their lives, and yet in rebellion, men live in rebellion. Now, that takes a different complexion. Now, you begin to understand, well, uh, there are things I cannot comprehend because of my human nature. But when I look at Scripture of who God is, I can then understand why He would do it, because not only that He's holy, but He's love, and in His love, He made a provision, but yet we trample on the provision. I mean, what is that easy to do? You know, He's like, before any man could go to hell, he has to walk across the cross, trample underfoot the cross. So uh, I think that puts it in perspective. But then again, we must not try to comprehend God and box God in. He's an infinite God. We are limited in our understanding. We just got to declare the truth as in Scripture. And that declaration will cause some offense. Thank you to those who have sent in questions. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 782 1454. I'm going to give that to you again. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Question, Pastor. Are there other Gospels besides the four Gospels in the Bible? The Muslims seem to mention the Gospel of Barnabas to support their view of Christ. What is the gospel of Barnabas? You know, sometimes, Nathan, I hear people uh, on the radio sometimes uh, talk about their other books that were taken out of the Bible and there were more writings and the church, um, in order to hide these things, kept these books out of the Bible as though pastors and people who have been to seminaries and had Bible training are not aware of these facts. Uh, so they give the impression that uh, the pastors are dummies and they're the smart persons and, uh, and that they're more informed than Christian leaders. But let me just say this. There's not a pastor who's ever been to any theological seminary that, not, not, that is not aware that there are a lot of what you call non-canonical gospels. 
that there are other writings that they call the pseudepigraphal uh, that were false. What happened is that these are writings that were written in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, sometimes later than that, and people use Bible names like the apostles and attach them to the documents to give authenticity to the writings. But again, uh, when the scholars examine these, bo- these particular writings, from the kind of form of writing, it's very, very clear. It's not from the 1st or the 2nd century. It come from way after uh, Christ's death, way after the apostles, but yet these books have the apostles' name attached to it. So they're frauds and they're fakes. For example, uh, there is the Gospel of Peter, there's the Gospel of Mary, there's the Gospel of Judas, there's the Gospel of Philip, and there is the Gospel of Barnabas. But the reason why the Muslims have chosen the book of Bar- the Gospel of Barnabas, uh, let me give you uh, their opinion of that gospel, okay? This is what one of their writing writers said, a guy, Muhammad Atta Ramhim. He said, The gospel of Barnabas is the only known surviving gospel written by a disciple of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another, another Muslim writer, M.A. Yusuf. He said, In antiquity and authenticity, no other gospel can come close to the Gospel of Barnabas. But here's why they do that. Because in the Gospel of Barnabas, it says that Jesus was never crucified. The person that was crucified was Judas. Judas Judas was substituted and crucified rather than Christ being crucified. And in the book of uh, the, 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 uh, the Quran, it says that Jesus was never crucified. So you can see why they would select that Gospel of all the other Gospels and elevate that Gospel when there's not a... Um, a authentic scholar that is aware of the historicity and the language that will tell you that that book, the gospel, was written in the first or second century. As a matter of fact, it goes as far as the fifth century. Some even say the thirteenth century. So that is why the Muslims would use that gospel because it falls in line with their theology that Jesus Christ never was was crucified. See, uh, people are very very selective. Now, if people don't know that. And then you, the, the Muslims tell them, you know, there's another gospel called the Gospel of Barnabas, and Jesus was never crucified, Judas was, etc., etc. Uh, people give the impression, well, how come the pastors never told us that? Because it's not worth telling you that. It's a, a fraudulent book. It's, you know, we don't want to confuse you with the New Testament gospels and these other uh, fraudulent gospels. That's why it's not needed for us to tell you that. There are only four gospels. There's only one Bible. There's only one God, Word of God. That's the Scriptures. So we don't worry to tell you that. But it's, it's, it's useful sometimes that when people ask questions that we can share with them that we're not ignorant of these things. Uh, it's just that it doesn't fall into our theology. And what does it benefit uh, to the Christian uh, community to, to, to uh, discuss these kind of matters? And I would imagine that there are so many false philosophies out there that you could spend your whole time preaching about, pointing that those are false, that you never get to tell the truth. That's correct. Uh, you only have so much time. And what you discover, Nathan, as you, you would discover very little, that you, you're, you're 18 today and you're 60 tomorrow. Time flies so fast, so you've got to devote your time to truth as opposed to constantly exposing error and dealing with error. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.59. 
Hard to believe we're already a third of the way through this episode of That's Truth. If you just tuned in and you're saying, man, I missed out, I sent in one of my questions and pastors already answered it, I believe, you can listen to the rebroadcast of this episode on Saturday afternoon here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. In Eastern Caribbean time, it will air from 3.30 until 5 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. You can also, later this week, go to our website, radiolighthouse.org, scroll down to the second large photo that you see. It's a broadcast microphone, just like the one I am speaking into. And right in the center of the screen, when you see that broadcast microphone, there is a circle that says, can click on the previous episode and... Uh, If you want to go back, you can go back to all 250 plus previous episodes and you can encourage them to, uh, you can share those programs with other listeners and be encouraged by listening to them yourself. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Pastor, we have a caller. Thank you for calling, and please go ahead quickly with your question. Good night to the panel. Good night, sir. Yes, sir. I talk right to because sometimes the credit, but I love to say what I'm saying when I listen to you all. Now, what is happening, it seems like, well, we, the people, sinners, do not understand that we have got a responsibility ourselves, not to permit sin. We say we go to church, we listen to all right, our kind of preachers and different things, but individually, don't seem like we understand that we have got the responsibility to know that God, Jesus Christ, is a holy God, and that we know, want, we have to want, desire in our heart to serve Him, to get to be where He is, and to get to heaven. But instead of that, no. We don't reach to that place. Are we dependent on go to church and listen to the pastor and forget that we always have to want to serve God and to live? And that is even talking about live in a world realizing that all that is in the world, the loss of the eyes, the loss of the flesh, and the pride of life. And if we want to see God, we have to keep away from these things and make up our mind to suffer that consequence. I've not been wrong. I have not seen it. I've been Okay, God bless. Thanks. Thank you for your call. If you would like to call and ask your question, you can call 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 268-782-1454. Pastor... What is the evidence that supports the Bible being the Word of God? You keep referencing that. Can you give a brief summary of its ma- the major arguments for such support? Yeah, I, I, let me just quickly uh, give you some what I consider to be the main f- factors that would uh, confirm. Number one is the testimony of Christ. There's no question about that. That settles it as far as whether the Bible is the Word of God. No one can read the Gospels and hear his comments in connection with the Scriptures without believing that he considered them to be authentic, to be genuine. As a matter of fact, he said not one jot or tittle would pass away. So anyone that denies the Bible is the Word of God uh, is really um, challenging 
the authenticity and the credibility of Christ. You're undermining his deity to question the word of God. Number two is the manuscript evidence. No other ancient book in the world has got as so many as many manuscripts to support its authenticity and its contents, like the Bible. It has over 5,700 5, manuscripts going back from the first century that confirms so that you could actually, uh, no other book, no other ancient book, I don't care what you mentioned, comes even close to that kind of body of evidence that is there, manuscript evidence to support the contents of Scripture. Number three, I would say the, the, the biblical authors themselves. Nobody um, doubts that they were uh, scrupulous and honest and men of integrity and truthfulness. And to charge that these men would write a book and append their name to it or, um, or make suggestions that they're just writing but yet it's the Word of God, uh, is to impugn their character. And I don't know of anybody who would impugn the character of New Testament writers. Uh, not even infidels would do that. And then the other thing is the prophecy of Scripture. I mean, hundreds of prophecies, over 200 prophecies, by the way, were fulfilled in connection with Christ's first coming. Uh, I mean, the, the overwhelming amount of prophecies that is there, dating back from uh, the time of the Psalms, 900 A.D., and, uh, and so on and so forth, and the prophetic, right, like Isaiah, 800 years, uh, there's no other book, no, no other book on planet Earth in any other form of religion that has so many fulfilled prophecies uh, that has come true. And yet there are prophecies that the Bible tells us the condition of the world as we move towards the end time, and we're already seeing the profile of that kind of catastrophic end that we're coming to. And the other one is the unity of the Bible. Forty men... 1,500 years, three languages, all different kinds of topics and numerous genres, including history, poetry, parables, allegory, drama, didactic literature, uh, apocalyptic literature, and epic uh, literature. Yet there's one consistent theme from Genesis to Revelations. You know what it is? Christ and Christ alone. The, the Old Testament, he's coming. The New Testament, he's come. And uh, he's coming again. That's the major theme in every single book uh, when it comes to, to, to uh, the scriptures. Number six is the archaeological confirmation. No archaeological discovery has ever been discovered that controverts or contravenes what the Bible has has uh, has de- declared or, or or taught. As a matter of fact, archaeologists use the Old Testament and the New Testament to find places the Bible talks about uh, to, 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 to discover where those places were. Uh, and uh, they have not found in Scripture an error in relation to the geographical location of a particular place that was mentioned uh, in all their years of discovery up until the present. Number seven would be I call the testimony of transformed lives, the power of the Bible. Uh, early Islam spread all over the world by the sword, the literal sword, uh, bringing people in subjection with the sword. Christianity uh, conquered the world by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, preaching the Word, two contrasting religions altogether, one by blood and one by the declaration of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I think the transforming power of the Scriptures um, is a clear evidence. The other thing is the confirmation of the authenticity of the Bible with the miracles and signs that were done by the apostles confirm 
that these men were called of God and given divine power. And I would mention one last one, which is the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Do you know the Bible talks about the earth being wrong long before they ever discovered it, that he sits on the circle of the earth? Do you know the Bible talks about gravity, that God hangs the world on nothing? And that was only until Newton came to discover such a thing as gravity. Do you know the Bible gives the wind cycles in the book of Ecclesiastes long before man discovered those? And the water cycle as well in the seas, etc. is mentioned in, in the scriptures as well. The book of Job contains a lot of scientific knowledge that man has only discovered in modern times. I think if you take the weight of those nine things and you compare them with any other form of religion or any other kind of, of book, uh, there's no comparison. It's completely unparalleled. We have the Word of God. It's the Scriptures. And it's the only instrument that has the inspired teaching of God designed for humankind in every age and every time. Those principles are timeless. That, sir, in summary, is the great arguments for the Bible. Question from a listener. Pastor Murphy, you reference the fulfilled prophecies but never reference the failed prophecies. For example, Ezekiel chapter 26, the prophecy is made that Tyre will be destroyed and will never be rebuilt, yet the city of Tyre still exists to this day. In whose mind? I can show you um, that that is not true. Okay? Um, the Bible says that when Tyre is destroyed, as a matter of fact, what Tyre is today it is a, it's not a city. It's like a, uh, it's like an old war with broken down um, structures with with uh, with stones. It's a place where people fish. It doesn't exist. Okay, so I think you are sadly mistaken, and I think you need to check your facts as far as that is concerned. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is eight oh nine. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Thank you for your interaction thus far throughout the evening, and we look forward to your continued interaction. Pastor, in previous broadcasts, you mentioned that Christian scientists laid the foundation for modern science. Can you name some of these and the areas of contribution that they gave to modern science? One of the books that really um, gives a summary of this is a book by uh, Henry Morrison. It's called The Men of Science, Men of God. And in that book, he mentions 110 great scientists uh, who were Christians. The only eight chapters and 107 pages, a very small book, but loaded and pregnant with information. Uh, let me give you the names that he mentions. And Johann Kepler, the area of contribution, astronomy. Blaise Pascal, the area of contribution, hydrostatics uh, and hydrodynamics. Robert Boyle, area of contribution, chemistry. Isaac Newton, contribution, physics. Nicholas Steno, uh, area of contribution, stratigraphy. Uh, Michael Faraday, uh, Magnetic Theory, Charles Babbage, Computer, First Computer, Louis Agassiz, uh, the, the word is uh, ecthiology, which is the study of, fi of fish, James Simpson, Gynecology, 
Gregor Mendel Genetics, Louis Pasteur Bacteriology, uh, Lord Kelvin Thermodynamics, Joseph Lister Antiseptic Surgery, John Clark Maxwell Electrodynamics, William Michael Ramsey uh, Isotopic Chemistry. Those are just a summary, uh, but he gives you within this book another uh, 110. And by the way, the chapters, chapter one, he got the biblical origin, origin of modern science. Chapter three, the founders of modern science. He gives 20 names. Chapter four, the age of Sir Isaac Newton. He has 12 great scientists around his age. Chapter five, pre, uh, pre-Darwin era, 27 great Christian names that preceded Darwin. Uh, chapter 6, post-Darwin, 28 great scientists that came after Darwin, Christians. And then chapter 7, modern era, he mentions eight great modern scientists, uh, etc. So for those who uh, feel intimidated or um, somehow think that Christians are obscurantists or we don't know what we're talking about, the world has been able to deceive, uh, the, 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 the devil has been able to deceive this world. The the most unscientific theory is evolution. How anybody could believe evolution who has any kind of common sense and who can see what life is about amazes me and puzzles me. It makes no sense, uh, and it contradicts the first law of thermodynamics and the second law of ther- thermodynamics. But again, it was the attempt to find a, um explanation for man's existence apart from God. That was the plan. And when they came up with what Darwin offered, uh, evolution and the uh, natural selection, it now allowed man to completely abandon God and any responsibility to God and push a theory that made man autonomous and independent with no need of any God to interfere us in us enjoying what we want to enjoy. That's the whole plan that was there. But the theory is unscientific, it's pseudoscientific, and it is being dismantled systematically today, and now they talk about intelligent design. But you can't have intelligent design without intelligent being. <laughs> That's the problem. But how do you turn around and say that we were mistaken? When did they took the DNA and analyze it, and they discovered that it contains as much information as the Encyclopedia Botanica, and it's in order, it's not, it's not by random, they knew that someone had to put this in place. That someone is an intelligent designer, but they're not calling him God. I don't know what else to call him. So uh, we as Christians, we just need to know the facts and and, and be informed so that we don't feel intimidated or we're somehow caught out to these beliefs that are being poured upon us. We need to take a stand for the word because we're dealing in the realm of truth. Let them do it deal in theory and hypotheses, but we're dealing in the realm of truth. What advice do you have for the Christian teacher who is responsible for teaching science, let's say in a secondary school here in the Eastern Caribbean, and the government-provided curriculum is uh, based on evolution? How, how do you balance that challenge in life? That's the dilemma that the American Christians found themselves in before. And uh, I went to school with a professor who could not get his doctorate. And the reason was he simply, in writing whatever um, exam he had to do, he simply could not support evolution. And he, he, he remained at his master's level, a highly gifted person, but simply could not get his doctorate. Um, that's a price that might need to be paid academically. My suggestion would be, uh, in a case that you, you, if you're taking a secular job and you want to be an influence 
in the in the secular field, maybe in education, whatever it is, uh, you can explain what they're saying, and then give the other option what creation says. I think that gives an option uh, uh, in terms of, of, of and balanced treatment. And by the way, that's what the the Christians in America has been asking for in the schools and the universities, a balanced treatment. They've not been asking to uh, throw evolution out. But the same way you're able to present the support and the facts which you think support evolution, give the Christian teacher the right to give the evidence for creation. And, of course, the problem with that is that uh, the secularists dominate the field of education. Humanists control the curriculum. They control the educational system. And, therefore, they're biased towards evolution. But what we need is a balance. Remember, evolution is a theory. If they want to say that Christianity is a theory as well, that's okay, but let's just give them their theory so that people can have a balanced understanding and make a choice. We have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello? Yes, sir. Um, Dr. Morrissey, this is the YC man, the guy at Matthews Road. You know me. Yes, sir. Yeah. According to Genesis chapter 20, with Genesis chapter 20, you could read a couple of verses there with Abraham. Uh-huh. I would, the question that I want to ask if Abimelech was a religious man and the people then that you were leading, if they were religious people too. Yeah, you, I can answer that immediately because it is very, very clear that when Abraham deceived him and got his wife Sarah to say that she was his sister, and then he took Sarah to be his wife, and he would have slept with her. But the Bible later says that God said, I kept you from <laughs> going in onto this woman because yes, this yes. is a man's wife. It's very, very clear that he had religious sentiments. Man is religious, oh, by the way. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 man is very, very religious. Man, is, man can't help being religion because he's made with a void in him, a God void in him that needs to be filled. It's just that... The religion leads man into idolatry if he's not informed by the revelation God has given. But clearly, Abimelech displayed the idea that he had some moral sentiments and he did believe in a God. You know, the Greeks believe in God, the Romans believe in God, but they had Zeus <laughs> and they had Jupiter and Mercury. But yes, uh, he did have some religious sentiments, no question about that. Thank you very much for your call and for your question. The phone line is now open and available for you to call. You can call and ask your question live on the air by dialing 1-268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 18 minutes after 8 p.m., and we are really enjoying the questions that have come in, and we are looking forward to your question coming in also. Pastor, anything else you want to mention in relation to the Christian science? I just I just wish sometimes that the students who go to universities and uh, the teachers who teach in public schools, et cetera, et cetera, I don't think in Antigua there's anything wrong with, uh, I don't have never heard of the government opposing uh, a science teacher talking about creation, never, not in Antigua for sure, not in the Caribbean. I, I, I hope that um, science teachers would, would 
take the opportunity to give both sides. This is what evolution teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. Here is the rationale for believing in this, so that the children could have a balanced understanding of this matter. The other thing is, I would wish that people who go to universities and sit in these classrooms and do science, etc., challenge some of this nonsense that's going on in the, you know, the, the, the creation scientists that go and debate these scholars all over the thing. They'll win all the time. The argument is there in, in their favor, quite frankly. And I wish that there were people bold enough to uh, go into a biology class knowing that the teacher is an uh, uh, evolutionist and uh, get a body of evidence to have a good, healthy debate in the classroom. Uh, and I think that that needs to be done. But I think too often people feel intimidated and don't want to express their Christian faith. I repeat that we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. And that means when we go to our workplace, we're to be salt there. We're to be light there. When we go to boardrooms, we'll be salt there to be light there. When we go to uh, in universities' um, classrooms, to be salt there and to also be light there. We must not be intimidated. We must speak the truth, speak it in love, but take a stand for the truth. Here's a very practical question. Pastor Murphy, what are some of the everyday pressures and challenges that may be tearing at love in my marriage relationship and may cause marital dissatisfaction, and how would that hurt my marriage? Well, uh, that question goes along with the question that was asked, I think, last week or week before, that, you know, uh, problems in marriage. I think that when people begin to have problems in marriage, they need to step back rather than step out. In other words, take some time to take a careful look at what is happening uh, to the marriage and what are the possible termites that are trying to eat the marriage apart from the inside. And very often, um, if people give some time to reflect, there are lots of things that are drag on the marriage that lead to disaffection within the marriage. Um, let me mention uh, some of these. For example... Think about when you, you've been struggling for your marriage. You've been struggling for the last five years with money problems. Maybe you had a big splash for the wedding. You spent maybe five or six thousand dollars, or even more than that. And you know you're gonna have this. And then you discovered, to your dismay, that the bills got to be paid. So you want this big thing to make a statement. And then you're discovering now for the last two to three years you're struggling five years. And then what happened? You got into a mortgage. Not only that, you don't want to drive the old jugger jugger you had before you've gone into uh, some kind of arrangement with the bank, now you've got a car. Uh, and what is happening is that you're overspending, you're overusing the credit card, there's a mortgage, um, there is car loans, and then, you know, uh, depending on how long you're married, if you've been married a few years, you've got a child, and you've got school fees. And however you try to deal with issues, the money, the problem of money keeps coming up again and again. And, and no matter uh, um, how hard the person works or you work, there simply is this struggle and it wears the marriage down because when a man is trying to do his best, uh, he's working as hard as he can, but it is never enough. And to be criticized and be told again and again and again uh, that he's not bringing in enough income, it drains his affection for the wife. Uh, it's as though she thinks he's a machine. He doesn't have feelings. It might be vice versa as well, that the, the husband is depending on the wife because she's perhaps working for more money than he does, etc. But money issues is something that you need to find out if this is disrupting the marriage. If you've got a credit card, is that the problem? 
some people can't go on the internet and watch anything except they, they've got to use the credit card. They always see something they've got to have. And of course, you're paying 25%, 20% uh, um, interest on these things. So you enjoy it now, immediate pleasure, but later on, uh, when payment is due, you have these. So I think that's one of the main issues in my. And by the way, today, that is the number one issue today that created problem in marriage. It used to be communication, but that is the number one one, the money problem. And things are tight. And by the way, it's going to get tighter uh, with, with money. So you've got to be very, very careful. That's one thing I would ask couples to do. Look at it very carefully and make sure that it is you're not allowing money to disrupt your marriage, divide your marriage, destroy your marriage. Uh, see what you can cut out, what you can uh, perhaps consolidate, your, your loans, whatever it is. Get good financial advice to how to deal with that. The other thing is stress. Question right. about the finance. How would you respond to the listeners that says, okay, Pastor Murphy, I'm about to get married, and in order to ensure that we don't let money become an issue, he's going to have his account, I'm going to have my account, and we're going to be responsible for different things, and that way we don't have to fight about it. I would say that that is a decision that has to be made between the couple, but I think it's a mistake. I really do. I really think that you guys should have a joint account, but I also think that there should be a, 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 an allowance that each of you should be able to spend a certain amount of money without having to go to the other person. And whether you've set that limit as $200 or $500, whatever it is, whatever it is but I do feel that you, you should not be, every time she wants to buy a pair of panties, can I spend this $20? That is so humiliating. Or every time he, he needs to uh, do something, he has to come and ask her, "Hun, can I do this? It costs 20 or 30 dollars Now, I think you have to have freedom, but you need also have limits. So I do feel that the joint account is the best thing, and a savings account must be part of that as well. But I do feel that it's important to have a joint account. But again, you have to give each other some freedom as to what a person can spend without having to consult with each other. I think that's important. What are some other the things? The other thing is stress, Nathan. And uh, this is a stressed out world. Work, stress at work, stress at home, stress, uh, stress at church, uh, stress um, t- dealing with personal issues, uh, relationships. Uh, I think that it is a tremendous burden uh, on people today. And uh, you bring home that stress at home. You're having financial problems. Now you add to that stress. And, and, and the third thing is the demand on your time, your work schedule, sometimes even your church involvement, or maybe you're doing some volunteer work, working with different organizations. Uh, you don't have time now for each other. When you first were dating, you had so much time. Uh, and then uh, the other thing, of course, is children, uh, parenting children. <laughs> the demand uh, sometimes can be so heavy. And when you have a wayward child as well, that complicates the matter. The time you devote trying to deal with that. And statistics show, by the way, that there's a decrease in marital satisfaction the moment a child is born. The reason for that is the time that you devoted to each other uh, is now devoted to the child. Uh, Your intimacy suffers as well. And that puts stress within the, the home. So some people talk about, you know, when I get a child, it, you know, it, 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 the dissatisfaction decreases. It just decreases because everything now is focused on the child until the child turns maybe 21 years old. And that, that, that causes stress within the, the marriage. So you've got to look at parenting. And then illness. Maybe not illness within your, your uh, immediate family, 
but illness of a father or mother or sister or daughter that needs um, care, uh, or you've got aging parents that you're already in financial strain, but they need help, and you're going to have to do that. It puts further strain. So when you have that kind of a situation, you're adding one weight upon the other. The other thing is your par- parents, parental interference. Um, if the person has not been weaned off the and matured uh, before they got married, and they have not learned what it is to leave mother and father, and every time you have issues, whether it be financial issue or stress or amount of time or children or whatever it is, they're on the phone with mommy, this is what happened. I mean, gosh, a man could only handle so much. But that in itself becomes divisive um, in terms of... Uh, so that is, and then... Uh, what is called past scripts. And what I mean by that, uh, things that you learn in your family of origin that you carry over into the marriage, maybe some bad habits that in the family, you know, for example, what, what if you're, you're not accustomed to order in the home? Now you're married, but your, your husband or your wife likes order. But again, you are so careless about that. Um, that can be a problem. What if you were eating steak and eating lobster, but now you're married to a person and they want chicken? Uh, that becomes a problem because you have certain tastes. So things that you carry over, and then the uh, past abuse is another thing that, that can, could, could be affected in the marriage, whether that be verbal abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, or physical abuse. But there are people that go into marriage and never discuss what happened in the childhood. Uh, and uh, by the way, one of every four women today have been sexually abused. One of every six men, it was one of five, and no one of six men, basically. Those things are not pe- things that people normally reveal and talk about. And then suddenly, years after the marriage, you touch your wife or whatever, and uh, you find that you have difficulty. Abuse uh, could be a problem. Past abuse can be problematic in marriage. And then expectations. In relation to the abuse, yeah. Um, what advice would you have for the person, again, that says, okay, I'm getting ready to get married, we're engaged, but, Pastor, if I open up before he's committed to me or before she's committed to me and I open up and really share what happened to me, it may be a complete turnoff and they may just say, you know what, I can't deal with that baggage. Look, truth sets free, okay? Um, if a person really loves an individual, for example— I might use it, just use this on the info, on the radio, it doesn't matter. My wife was abused as a child, okay? My wife never told me when I got married. I only found out later. But again, if she had told me, it wouldn't make any difference. It would make absolutely no difference for me because I thought this is the one the Lord had for me, right? Uh, so I think um, hiding things when they become known becomes problematic of trust. I know of situations, uh, Nathan, where... People are married and persons are using money to help another family member, but never told the husband or never told the wife. When that is discovered now, that is such a big problem. I can't trust you. You're doing things behind my back. And it it creates a a gap between, a credibility gap between the couple. It's better um, to explain if a person really, really, how would you like to be married to somebody who got AIDS and never told you? Hmm. How can you love a person like that? You don't feel betrayed? I would. 
Yeah. Right. So I think the best thing to do is to share that with the person. Uh, say, this is a difficult thing, but I'm going to be honest with you. I, I love you. I care about you. I don't want to hurt you in the future. And I just want to be upfront with you. But I got to share something that's very difficult for me to share. But I think I need to share it with you and explain that to the person. Okay? And give the person a choice. Right? Give the person. You know, love covers a multitude of evil. And the things that happen, I think that when you really love a person, quite frankly, uh, there's hardly a thing about that person that you know that eventually could change. But the problem you don't like is when you feel deceived. Or you feel that, you know, if you told me that, at least I could have made a, a decision, a better decision, a more informed decision. So I don't think hiding things helps in the long term. You know, secret sins come out. And it can be very, very, very devastating. Very, very devastating. So I would think to be very upfront with the person. Uh, again, the problems you have when you've been through abuse, uh, as you go on in your marriage, you get these flashbacks. You get your flashbacks. You remember where you were touched all that. And when your husband touched you, quite frankly, it just... Fl- I know of a case like that in uh, St. Lucia where a, a, a daughter had to return home from one of the islands to confront her dad before he died. And the reason what happened, it destroyed her marriage. Uh, but she had to come back to him and said, you know, I, I just let you know that this is what you did, blah, blah, blah. She could have been liberated and freed much earlier than that and probably could have saved her marriage in the process. But by delaying and delaying and then finally uh, finding it that he can't touch her now, blah, 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 that just disrupts the intimate part of their life. Of course, she's not telling him what's happening. Right. And he feels that maybe she's cheating, maybe she has another person, her needs are being met, blah, blah, blah. And that leads to alienation and finally the dissolution uh, of the marriage. Obviously, this type of baggage is not a first date type of conversation. <laughs> no, no. But how do you know how far along in the relationship to go? Because some might be feel like they were deceived if you tell them a month before the marriage, whereas others might want to know about it uh, at a different time interval. Well, I, I think this is where dating, I, I keep telling people th- this. Dating is about information. It's about finding out likes and dislikes. It's about finding out about the family of origin, how they operate, etc. And the problem with dating today, too soon, it becomes physical. Once dating becomes physical, the physical rules, all you date for is to become physical. So you never learn any information. You never ask any probing questions because that's not the what you're concerned about. No, it's about how do we get aside and how we can we enjoy some kind of physical intimacy. That becomes the the, the pro, and that is where the people lose out at marriage and lose out of getting real important details that become important later, because when this euphoria is over. And by the way, the euphoria of love only lasts between one and three years. So this, I can't live without you, and so on. After three or four years, it begins to wane. So it needs now to be intentional as opposed to be emotional, see? Uh, and that is where the information is needed long before, uh, uh, etc. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. If you have a question, we would love for you to call and ask it. You can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420 
or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Any other areas that are... Yeah, the other thing is uh, expectations, which are often not discussed, Nathan. Uh, What do you expect of this marriage, etc.? Like children. Uh, You know, how many people got debate about... They have one children. He he had plans for four or three or whatever. She only had plans for one or two. You know, when you have a situation and you haven't discussed that before, you'll get married and know. So you have all kind of issues, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and of course, when it comes to a male, a man, generally speaking, he wants a son. So if you just said we only want two kids and you got two girls, you got a problem. You got a problem because he wants a son. Now you might try for a son and get a third girl, right? But the problem is that you just gotta discuss these things and have an idea what how many children we're thinking of before we get married. You don't want to get a shocker and then you create all kinds of problems. And then of course uh, everything is going to be better. Uh, I am going to my husband is going to complete me, my wife is going to complete me, my wife my husband or wife will never hurt me. That's a dream. That's not true. Sinners hurt sinners. And even though a person is a Christian, he still have a sin nature. So the idea that you're going to have this kind of idealistic uh, family, no hurt, no pain, is a delusion. And the fact that he can complete you, it's Christ that complete you. Don't look for a man to complete you. Christ will complete you. Uh, but too often we put too much uh, expectations from our partners that only Christ can meet and God can meet, and that leads to problems. In the, and then, of course, satanic assault. Nathan, if the devil sees the potential of two people coming together, and they will do a great work for God, you can be very sure that all hell aims all guns at those people. So you will find that they will do everything to destroy that marriage. It's not only the human side, we are also engaged in a spiritual battle. And when the devil sees the potential of this couple doing something great for God, don't be surprised that behind the scenes, you have this sinister being trying to create problems within your marriage. That's another thing, satanic attack. And I would say also, um, which is very big for women, the communication impasse. Communication is vital for women. For men, love is sex. No question about that. For women, love is talking and communication. If a man doesn't understand that, he's a fool, okay? And he needs to wake up to understand that if he's not communicating, he's not talking, he's not relating and not verbal, you are going to have problems in your marriage. Your wife will find, find think that she's only a sex object and she's only there to satisfy your physical desire. But you have no time for her, no time to communicate with her at any depth. I think that's a, another problem. And then I would also mention finding Nathan... Uh, when you begin to flirt and infidelity, that also affects marriage. I think everybody knows that. When you're dissatisfied in your home, your eyes begin to wander because you're trying to find uh, relief, and often that relief uh, is what you're missing, which is love. So you're trying to find love another place, and that leads to infidelity, and that becomes problematic. Those are just a few things. And by the way, uh, Nathan, the way that it happens that people become disaffected uh, between themselves, it always starts with criticism. Uh, something after you begin to have problems, maybe you've got all these nine things weighing you down, you now begin to criticize the person. And when you begin to criticize, what happens is that you keep telling to me, you know, you're a fool, you're like your father, uh, 
you don't understand women, you're not sensitive, you don't love me, you don't have a heart for me. You keep telling me that negative, negative all the time. Eventually what happens is that I develop into contempt for you. And what I mean by that is, when you're talking to me now, I'm looking in the sky, I'm rolling my eyes, I've lost my respect for you because you're critical. So it goes from criticism to contempt, whether it be the man or it be the woman. And then when that happens, you become defensive now. Uh, and uh, <laughs> um, you're trying not to defend everything. Um, and even random acts of kindness that you're trying to show to me, I deflect that. Quite frankly, I'm not interested. You can you can tell me. I, you can bring flowers to me. You can cook my best food. You can. No, I have no interest. As a matter of fact, I start eating out and telling you that you just don't have to cook for me. And that leads finally to stonewalling. And stonewalling, of course, is when you build a wall among yourself and you say, you know what, this isn't worth fighting anymore. Uh, I think I want out of this, and I just not prepared to listen any longer. So you go from criticism, you go to contempt. You go to defensiveness, and then you end up where you stonewall each other, and communication completely breaks down. Um, you're going to have to uh, <laughs> take that spiral and bring it back up so that you now have to have a new strategy of relating to each other, and you're going to have to have a, a greater level of intimacy and closeness. You have to rebuild that network of intimacy that was there to try to save the marriage and rebuild the marriage. Is there hope? There's always hope, Nathan. I <laughs> remember that God is a God who exists in relationships within the divine trinity. We were built for relationships. He has given us the model of what would make relationships work. He's told a man what he needs to do. He's told a woman what she needs to do. If we would just take the biblical, basic, fundamental principles, what's a man's job? To love his wife and care for his wife. Yeah. What's a woman's job? To respect her husband, submit to her husband. If a man loves and cares for his wife as he should, the woman will respond in respect and submission. So the failure is in that area. that, And you need to see where the failure, where, where it began. Uh, and then you begin to work your way back and rebuild uh, on that basis. A man needs to say, no, you know what? I need to start showing my, love, my wife love and care. Be tender to her and affectionate. When that begins to happen, guess what? She says, you know what? I need to respect this man. So there, is, there are biblical solutions to the problem. There's hope. As long as we are alive and we are believers and we are Christians, there's hope. There's also room for forgiveness and development and growth. So we have a message of hope to the, a world that is broken, and we can say to people, you can put your marriage back together. Just take these simple biblical principles and work these things out in your life. And then, of course, the other things that we would need to do in that process. How would you respond to the listener who, in their mind, they're not brave enough to say it out loud, but in their mind they say, Pastor, you went through this list of, it had to have been 10 items that can undermine my marriage, but you didn't list pornography. Does that mean that porn isn't as bad as I've no, been hearing? No, uh, to my fact, I just, these are just nine things that came, but they, I mean, there are more that you could mention as well, uh, Nathan, but uh, take friends. There are people that uh, had certain friends before they got married, and sometimes girls, women, have been very, very close to men, certain men, not that they're having an intimate re relation, but they're very, very close, and that becomes problematic in the marriage. The husband now feels threatened. He feels jealous. I've had women who have frankly told me, I'm not breaking this relationship. 
Well, that woman's a fool. Because your relationship is more important for your husband than it is with anybody else. And if he feels threatened or he feels jealous, it's the wife's responsibility to sever the relationship. Similarly, there are men who had girlfriends and they were very, very close. Not that they're having an affair. And then they go into a marriage. And the wife finds out that they're still calling each other. As a matter of fact, she checks her cell phone and says, what's this number? You know, and, and it becomes problematic. She comes to him and says, you know what? I want you to end this. He insists, I'm not going to end it. I had it before. These could be mentioned. And then pornography, Nathan. That's, that perhaps is one of the very big ones today that destroyed marriage. Because what it has done is that it has turned, uh, it, it, it has created the imagination of fantasy fantasy sex, exotic sex, uh, not normal sex. And it, it makes the, the person now who has seen it want their partner to actually follow in the trend. I call them whores. They want their wives to be whores. Uh, and, and what has happened, they make demands now that never were there before, but they want to do things that in their conscience they can't do. And when that doesn't happen, you end up having problems. I think that within the, 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 the home, within the bed, the bed is on the file, and I think that both persons must be comfortable with whatever uh, the, uh, intimacy they're going to have. But to impose this thing from outside and bring it into the marriage and expect these type of things um, really, really puts too much weight uh, on a wife. And... Again, when men are watching pornography and engage in pornography, it turbocharged them. And sometimes the demands, they lack control. The demands, the demands, as though she's just a sex machine. That in itself can wear her down. And again, it's the pornography that's pushing it. Pornography is pushing it. These are things that we need to stay away from. And the problem today, Nathan, is that the, the, the age of which people get involved in porn is now between 12 and 18. It's actually gone to like 9 to 18. And the ones that seek it most online now is between 12 and 18. So think about that for just a moment. When these people get married, (laughs) how is that marriage going to work? We are setting up ourselves to fail, and those in authority who can control this thing ought to put some brakes on it in the interest of the welfare of the country and the saving of marriage in the future. I am disappointed that... um, things are allowed that should not be allowed there has to be some level of censorship Nathan there has to be you just can't have a laissez-faire where anybody can do everything even though it's damaging the young minds of, of the next generation we need to save them and sometimes to save them we have to put strictures to salvage them question from a listener Pastor Murphy my wife and I are both born again Christians my wife is wanting to be able to access my cell phone at any time. Should I give in to this? If I were you, I would. I, look, I, I got a cell phone. I have a computer at home. Everybody knows my password. Um, anybody can take up my phone. Any, I have nothing to hide, Nathan, honestly. In the church, I have a computer. That computer has no password. Anybody can go anytime in that church and check and see what Pastor Murphy, the only danger that somebody told me, what if somebody could set you right, up? Yep. That's my concern. But again, I don't think anybody can do that. But but anybody has access. I want to be, and I think we should be so open. A husband and a wife shouldn't have anything to, 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 to hide. What is there to hide on my phone? Uh, 
What's there hide? I can't think of anything that I would want to hide from my wife, honestly. So I think, uh, if I were you, sir, I don't think it's being a little boy. I don't think it's being um, humiliated. I just think it's a matter of openness. You know, the Bible says, and the man and woman was naked, and they were not ashamed. It's talking about intimate openness, but again, there must be openness at the level of intellect, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing that... Uh, <laughs> My wife, anytime my wife wants my phone, she can have it. Anytime. She can pick it up when I'm there, when I'm not there. I got nothing on my phone that my wife can't 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 see. So I think, sir, it's in your interest of the, 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 the trust and confidence in your relationship to let your wife have access to the phone. We have nine minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. If you have a question, please call and Ask it live on the air by dialing 1-268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. But get your question sent in quickly so that we can, I can ask it to Pastor Murphy and he will have time to answer it before the end of the episode. Pastor Murphy what role does baptism have in my salvation? Baptism does not play any role in your salvation other than the fact that after you're saved, uh, it's a public confession of your identification in Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But it can't save. Um, we are saved all by faith in Christ. The Old Testament believers were saved by looking forward to Christ's coming. They had the proto-evangelium promise made in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would come in. All of them were looking forward to the Messiah to come. That's how they were saved. Uh, we are saved by looking back on the fact that Christ has come. Uh, so we're saved. The thief of the cross, if baptism was necessary for salvation, he would have to come off the cross and be baptized. But he wasn't. Okay. What about people who make professions of faith on their deathbeds? and uh, can't get off the deathbed, or who are crippled and can't get... What do you do, do about a person? So if you insist on, on that, you have a problem. And then why would the Apostle Paul say in Corinthians, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you other than, and he mentioned, two, two families. Can you imagine salvation being by baptism and Paul making the statement, I thank God I didn't baptize you? It's unthinkable, right? But it is a picture of Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and, uh, and that's why it's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it is. It's not, it doesn't have any salvific value, but it has the, uh, it's a confirmation value that you follow the Lord, and you're publicly making a statement that you're making a clean break, you're dead to the old life, you're now raised to the new life, and you're going to live for the Lord. So it's a testimony and a witness of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Question from a listener. Pastor Murphy, how old were you when you became a Christian? I was either 16 or 17. I don't remember the exact day, but I can tell you exactly the sermon that was preached. I can tell you who was preaching. I can tell you exactly what happened. I can tell you what happened when I got saved as well. I can give you all the details. But I, I'm sometime in church and people singing, it's a Sunday, it's a Monday. I can't tell you. I can stand up for every day because I don't know exactly the, 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 whether it was a Sunday, a Monday. It's probably a Sunday night, though, uh, as far as if we have an evangelistic meetings of a guy from St. Vincent called Pastor Cupid. And uh, uh, he was preaching on Peter, following the Lord afar off, and he said some things that exposed my voyeurism. 
I was a peeping Tom. And he skinned me alive, put salt in there. Man, by the time I was wondering who whispered in this guy's, <laughs> I came out of so much conviction that brought me to faith and trust in Christ. Uh, and I went home, of course, and put down the date on the wall, wrote it down on the, on the, uh, on the wall of the church, and they painted it over. <laughs> and it was a wooden house at the time. Now it's a wall house, so it's all gone. <laughs> but that's when I got saved. But you have no <laughs> doubts of your salvation, oh, even no, though that no, writing no, is gone. No, no, no. Uh, you know when you come under conviction. Honestly, you, you, you know that. And, and the thing about it, Nathan, is that your whole life changes. You just change it. And, you know, you, you begin to think about not dishonoring the Lord. You know, when, when I was, I tell people this, I hear people, temptation. I was a teacher at 18 years old in secondary schools in Barbados. I was a math teacher and a science teacher. Now, if you know what a science teacher and a math teacher to these young people, young girls in, in the thing, they love their math teacher. I mean, I find I would tell you some things that people would do. Temptation. I hear people know temptation. It was there. But I could not take advantage of anybody because, what? I'm a Christian. I didn't want to be smirched in the name of Christ, you know. Temptation is there, Nathan, but you're conscious of what you've done, and you don't want to bring disrepute to the name of God. So you live your life and harness and control yourself in the interest of the kingdom of God. Pastor, we just completed the Christmas season, and we were celebrating our Lord Jesus Christ coming to this earth as the Messiah. How can we be sure that he was the true Messiah, and what biblical evidence is there? Well, the, the question is, what are his credentials? Because in the Old Testament, the prophets gave you certain credentials that when the Messiah comes, uh, there were certain credentials he had to meet in terms of certain qualifications. Uh, and there are over 200 prophecies I mentioned that he fulfilled when he came. But let me mention a few of them. Number one, he had to be born of a woman, uh, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And Galatians says, when the fullness of time come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Now, that's very significant because the, the Bible always emphasizes that the, ma- the person, it always emphasizes the, the male aspect of it. Uh, but in this case, the emphasis on the fact that he was born of, the other, he was born of a woman who was a virgin. That's in uh, Isaiah seven fourteen and fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, 21. Uh, so, uh, this one is come is not born of a, a, a sexual union between a, a human being and a woman. This woman is going to have a child and she will remain a virgin while this child is born. Uh, he will be cut off, according to Daniel 9.24, after 483 years after the, the, the city of Jerusalem was rebuilt, uh, he will be cut off. There's a book written by Sir Robert Anderson uh, called The Coming Prince that give you the particular statistics and dates to can show you exactly when the triumphant entry started and he's worked it out because he was a mathematician, a historian, and an archaeologist as well. So he's able to put those those things together. Uh, he is the seed of Abraham, Genesis 1 to 3, and Genesis 22, 18, and Matthew 1, 1, and Galatians three sixteen. He is of the tribe of Judah, <coughs> Genesis 49, verse 10, Luke three twenty three thirty three and Hebrews seven fourteen, he is the house of David. Second <coughs> Samuel seven, twelve and following Matthew chapter one verse one, he had to be born in Bethlehem. Micah five one, Micah two one and Luke two four and seven, he would be anointed of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah eleven two, uh, Matthew three sixteen and seventeen. 
a herald will be sent before him. Uh, Isaiah 43, Malachi 3, 1, Matthew 3, uh, 1 and 2. He would perform miracles, uh, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Matthew 9, 35. He would cleanse the temple, Malachi 3, 1, Matthew 21, 12. Uh, he would be rejected by his own people, Psalm 118, verse 22, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. And he would die a humiliating death, Psalm 2, Isaiah 53. He would be rejected, Isaiah 53, verse 3, Matthew 27, 31. He will be silenced before his accusers, Isaiah 53, verse 7, Matthew 27, 12 to 19. He would be mocked, Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8, Matthew 27, 31. His hands will be pierced and his feet will be pierced, Psalm 22, verse 16, Luke, Luke 23, 33. He will be crucified with thieves, Isaiah 53, 12, Luke 23, 38. He would be praying for his, his persecutors, Isaiah 53, 12, Luke 23, 43. Uh, his side would be pierced, Zechariah 12, 10, John 19, 34. He would be buried in the tomb of a rich man, uh, Zechariah 12, uh, 10, John uh, 19, 38. Uh, he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, uh, Isaiah 53, 9, Matthew 27, verse 57 to 60. Uh, lots will be cast for his garments, Psalm 22, 18, John 19, 23, and 24. He would rise from the dead, Psalm 16, verse 10, Mark 16, 6, Acts 2, 31. He would ascend into heaven, Psalm 68, verse 18, Acts 1, 9. And he would sit down at the right hand of God the Father, Psalm 110, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. In other words, until a person can meet those credentials, that's the only way you know he's a man, and no other person. Today, or after, because there's no longer any crucifixion. There was no crucifixion before he was born either. So, um, for those who ask, how do we know he's a Messiah? Because all the prophetic messages and prophecies were made concerning the Messiah, he has uniquely fulfilled them to the very detail, the very iota, confirming that he is who he is. Uh, he is Christ, the Messiah. A question that has come in from a listener. Pastor Murphy, can you please explain 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20? In the King James, it says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called. And in the English Standard Version, it says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called a knowledge. Yeah. Well, that's a better explanation. Guard the truth, the treasure of God's Word, because remember that uh, Paul is handing off the baton to Timothy. That's his whole purpose. He's been mentoring Timothy because Paul is going off the scene. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be lose his head. He's going to be beheaded. And he's been mentoring this young man, and he's writing to this young man, and he's telling to him, Hold on to guard the truth, the faith that has been handed on to you and avoid all these other uh, nonsensical disputes, including uh, science or knowledge that uh, people pretend to hold to the word, hold to the scriptures, hold to the biblical truth that you have, hold to the Old Testament, hold to the new truth that Paul has given to them um, in, his, in, in his writings. Pastor, do you believe that that truth... And well, let me ask you this. Are you convinced that that truth that Paul was writing to Timothy about is still as practical of truth for me and for you 2,000 years later? Yeah, the Bible is 
um, it, it's relevant for all time. It's a timeless book. It is, it's God's message. The principles uh, are relevant. Uh, it's just that we need to do some searching to make some application. Even the Old Testament principles, moral principles and spiritual principles are applicable, applicable today. It's just a matter of, of involving ourselves in the study of God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to teach us. And when we have a problem or an issue, search the Word to find out what scripture is relevant to that topic to help people to be uh, to help people give them hope give them something to hold on to and give them something that they can depend upon this is God's word in the last 10 seconds does the Bible have the answers to my life's problems absolutely not only to your life's problem but to my life's problem and your neighbor's life's problems everybody's it has an answer it's God's book thank you for joining us for today's program We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.